everyone. I'm Melody Maraca. And I'm Bill C. Welcome back to the Into the Heart of YouTube podcast, where two longtime fans discuss YouTube music, album by album and tour by tour, the fan experience and the perception of YouTube and cultural consciousness. Yeah, uh, Melody and I, we came of age with U2. We saw it all happen in real time. And as we sit here in 2023, we still care about this band, but we're concerned about their legacy. So as we take a trip back through the band's history, we're going to try and place it in proper context and ultimately get to the bottom of whether U2 is one of the greats of all time or are the haters right after all. So last time we discussed the recording and songs of The Unforgettable Fire. And now we're going to go ahead and talk about our reactions to the album and the critical and fan reaction, um, as well as the tour that ended up propelling the band into the rock and roll stratosphere. So, Melody, what's your takeaway on The Unforgettable Fire? Well, let me start by saying this. Um, for a band that has never been shy about wanting to make big music for big places, um, which, of course, needs big commercial success to happen. The Unforgettable Fire is an interesting sidestep in U2's career. Um, on this album, we have a band dismantling the image of the fiery rock and roll band that had emerged out of the war album and tour. Before that image had become tired, and strikingly, before that image had the potential to run its course economically. So I think you have to ask the question, why? Why change paths so dramatically? Why pull in Brian Eno, who is clearly not interested in doing a rock and roll album? Why, Bill? That's my question. Why? <laughs> well, the short answer is survival, sustainability, and I would say a maniacal drive to keep moving forward beyond the grasp of critics and fans' obsession to label them as any one thing. Uh, this is not their best record, but it's still my go-to record when I want to be reminded why I care about this band. This whole period from the end of the war tour to Live Aid, to me, is the most fascinating time in the band's career. Um, all the decisions that went into the making of The Unforgettable Fire, you know, as we covered the renegotiating with Island while making the record that no one wanted them to make, the way The Unforgettable Fire tour stumbled out of the gate but evolved into for me the most intense and memorable shows they've ever done um everything was in service to their art something that has not always been the case the last decade or so but here they are living it and for me fall 1984 just starting my first band u2 and rem are providing like an education and i was in rapt attention yeah, ultimately, I agree with you, Bill. Um, I do think that the driving force behind the decision to change directions was to learn, grow, and inspire themselves as artists. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, although you do need to give you two a lot of credit for having the foresight to know that reinvention can be a hallmark of career longevity in music. No question. And make no mistake, this is a band that thought a hell of a lot about its growth, its perception, its relevance, and as I said, its sustainability. And this detour from grabbing the brass ring proves to be an essential ingredient of the journey. Yeah. And I mean, looking at this, I guess, from a, 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 a in a personal way, I have to say this was not an album I immediately loved, um, but it did intrigue me. Um, and I did feel an, a, a connection to its emotional core almost at once. However, it did take some time for me to really get into it. Um, there were a lot of listens <laughs> during those first few weeks. 
following its release on October 1st, 1984. Um, but you know, Bill, I mean, it's often those albums that aren't immediately accessible that are the ones that you really dig into and become the most special. And for me, The Unforgettable Fire is certainly one of those albums. Listen, you know, before we move on to discuss the critical reaction to the album, we need to talk about the album cover, uh, which, like the music, is a big departure from war. Uh, when I first got the album, I remember staring at this grainy photo of what looked to be, you know, the ruins of a castle towering over the band, standing in a field, barely recognizable in that magenta border and the now iconic font of U2, The Unforgettable Fire. And little did I know, this murky, inscrutable cover was a harbinger of the music inside. Hey, speaking of the cover, um, I, I know you know this, Bill, but um, uh, this was the first of many U2 album covers using um, photographs by Anton Corbin. Um, and the castle on the cover is, I think I'm pronouncing this correctly, Moydrum Castle in County Westmeath, um, which is in the center of Ireland. Um, the band liked the mystic feel of the photographs. The only problem was that the photo used on the vinyl releases was pretty much identical to a photo used as the cover of a book called In Ruins, The Once Great Houses of Ireland. And I mean, if you look at that photo, there's no way <laughs> it was an accident. <laughs> they are identical. Mm. Um, anyway, the band ended up having to pay an undisclosed figure to um, Simon Marsden, who was the author of the book. Um, and Anton Corbin promised he would never do something like that again and obviously you two went ahead and, and they forgave him because he did work with them a lot in the future but uh, i thought that was interesting forever they work yeah, with forever him. so they they forgave him of that um <laughs> now i want to point out the legacy of the unforgettable fire has vastly improved with time probably more so than any other u2 record though pop may eventually prove otherwise we shall see um, in any case, the truth is the initial reviews weren't great. Um, Kurt Loder's Rolling Stone review pretty much eviscerated it, you know, dismissing it as pure folly and overindulgent. Um, senior critic Dave Marsh, an early supporter of the band, also took great umbrage with it. Um, but if you Google Unforgettable Fire reviews now, you'll see dozens of think pieces, you know, reevaluating and reconsidering and lauding it as a brilliant outlier in the canon. Yeah, I mean, and regardless of press reaction, um, uh, the band's switch in musical direction um, it, with this album does very well commercially. Um, it ends up going to number one in, in the UK and number 12 in the States. Um, and for a second, I want to look beyond the traditional press reactions, and I want to talk about some of the fan response that begins to happen following the release of The Unforgettable Fire. I mean, we've talked in previous episodes about the fan experience at concerts, um, that communal feeling at U2 shows. Uh, but beginning in 1984, 1985, a lot of U2 and U2-related fanzines start popping up. Um, and here we have fans moved by uh, the music um, and they're inspired to create something of their own. You know, and I mean, as with a lot of other zines, these did focus on music news, reviews and gossip. But there was also a heavy, heavy uh, attention uh, paid to the exploration about various social justice causes. And I ended up being part of the scene for a short time. And I can tell you, um, I met some very talented writers um, during this Unforgettable Fire tour who were extremely generous with their time. Um, I mean, the feeling of community and support within this fanzine subculture was pretty amazing. 
Yeah, and the band responded to those fanzines and made themselves available for interviews, too. I mean, Melody, you're being very modest. I mean, you did interview them for your fanzine, did you not? I didn't personally, but yes, they were interviewed for the fanzine that I worked on. Um, Adam Clayton sitting down for well over an hour plus interview um, with the fanzine. And yes, they were very, very generous with their time, um, with a sh- in sh- making sure that fanzines had photo passes mm. um, and tickets to show. I mean, it, to shows. It was quite amazing, actually. And they did this for a very long time. Yeah. Um, this went on well into um, past Octung Baby, up into Pop. Nice. Very nice. generous. Yeah. And now we're going to go ahead and take a look at the tour that ended up propelling the band into the rock and roll stratosphere. But it was a bit of a bumpy journey getting there, wasn't it, Bill? Oh, yes. (laughs) Uh, Not for the first time. U2 starts a tour too early and under-rehearsed. And when they open the tour in New Zealand, it's basically a war tour set list plus pride. And it would take a while to work songs like The Unforgettable Fire into the set but they flounder with it and drop it so they can keep rehearsing it in sound checks. In it goes, out it goes again. Same with Wire and un, uh, a sort of homecoming a few weeks later into the tour. In they go, out they go. In they go, out they go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to say, though, I mean, in fairness, it wasn't that big of a deal um, that the Unforgettable Fire songs weren't featured in the New Zealand-Australia tour. Since, I mean, that whole leg of the tour um, takes place before the album was released. Uh, but as the European tour approaches, uh, the band know they have a problem. Um, the second leg of the tour is originally uh, scheduled to start on October 1st, 1984, to coincide with the release of the album. However, it needed to be postponed by almost three weeks to give the band more time to rehearse. Yeah, I mean, bad wasn't even tried till well into the European leg, uh, but it's an enigma. They can't figure it out. Um, Bono in particular struggles to find liftoff. Um, He's singing the choruses in falsetto. The early versions are pretty fascinating, but by no means are what you'd call tight or resembling what we would get towards the end of the tour or in their iconic performance uh, of it at Live Aid. Um, But it's not just bad um, because of the production on Unforgettable Fire, the layers of guitars, reliance on keyboards. You two had to essentially come up with new treatments to make the songs work on stage. Um, They had to start using backing tracks and sequencers on Unforgettable Fire and on Bad. I mean, like Edge had to come up with new riffs or distill down his guitar parts into one to make stuff like a sort of homecoming work. Yeah, and one of the problems um, with getting it together with the sequencers was due to the venues the band was playing in Europe. Um, While the band, pretty much they were big enough in the States to start playing in arenas, they didn't have quite enough of a following in Europe. Um, And subsequently, they were playing under these 
um, large tents for the first shows. And the rain and the elements would leak through the tenting, which created havoc with the equipment, causing it to malfunction. Um, and I mean, at some of the shows, the keyboards and the sequencers didn't work at all. Um, the songs and the sound do improve when the band does a short nine-date tour of the States with one show in Canada. We won't forget about Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and Bill, both you and I were at the final show of that tour in Long Beach, California, I believe. Correct. And I think the motive of that first U.S. leg, you know, was to keep things small and intimate as they continued to get their legs but they were just getting too big. I mean, uh, by the end of that leg, um, it was pandemonium. Um, earlier in that little jaunt was a, a gig at the very small Radio City Music Hall. Uh, whether the intentions were were right to do something intimate, I mean, it was just like a near riot. They just were getting too big, and we and I think both you and I knew by the end of that tour, the one the show we were at, and we knew that our biggest cult band in the world was moving on to a whole whole other level of success it was going through the roof indeed indeed yeah. um and then after that leg of uh, the tour they go on to play an almost equally short leg through europe in january february 1985 um where they're playing a mixture of um you know arenas halls and theaters yeah and for me you know the biggest fascination is watching bono transform from the guy on the war tour who had allowed his insecurities over the music to sometimes hijack shows, you know, with all the scaling of the scaffolding uh, and straying into the audiences. Um, but the Bono on the Unforgettable Fire Tour will operate internally, uh, drawing the audience into his, uh, like, nightly exorcisms. And as the tour unfolded and the shows got more and more intense, uh, bad would become the nightly highlight as the song stretched out over 15 minutes and Bono would improvise and drop in various snippets ranging from Ruby Tuesday to waiting for the man and bringing a girl on stage for an embrace and a slow dance, which was, you know, like a symbolic gesture of connecting with the whole audience and a far more effective means of coming together than becoming a spectacle by jumping off a, a PA speaker. And I think when it finally all started to click, as it did in the spring U.S. tour, to me, these are the greatest shows U2's ever done. For pure performance, drama, and intensity, no artifices or bells or whistles, Bar none, this is the tour for me. Um, Zoo TV was perhaps the greater example of spectacle and innovation, but the shows on the last leg of the Unforgettable Fire Tour are gobsmacking, and it all leads up to Live Aid. Okay, Bill. Before we move on to Live Aid, um, you know, I, I've got to I've got to talk about my YouTube tale of woe per, for posterity. Um, you know, I, I know you mentioned that Bono invited a girl up on stage to dance with him during Bad, um, which became this huge emotional moment during the shows, a big set piece for them, really. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I, I can speak for most U2 fans at the time, most girls and shoot, most people in the crowd wanted to dance with Bono during that song. <laughs> well, Bill, on yes. March 5th. 1985, I saw the band at the Los Angeles Sports Arena. I know you were at that show, too. Yes. Um, and I had a seat 
in the middle of the second row, right smack in the middle. And I was standing on my chair at the start of bad, along with almost everybody else in the crowd. And there's this dude uh, standing directly behind me who had been loudly complaining about everybody standing on their chairs for the whole show. He was the real, you know, buzzkill type. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so the moment in bad comes where, you know, Bono is, is scanning the crowd, looking for the girl to pull out. And he pointed at me. Mm -hmm. and you know the people that are standing next to me are yelling it's you it's you you're going up you're going up you're going up <laughs> and i was just about to try to make my way towards the front of the stage i wasn't sure how i was going to get there maybe i was going to fly levitate i don't know <laughs> anyway the guy behind me he pushes me in the back of the legs which caused me to completely fall backwards i'm, I'm amazed i didn't break my skull but anyway by the time i get back up it's over the whole <laughs> moment has passed no girl is brought up on stage that night. So I know that it was supposed to be me. Hmm. Okay. Okay. I feel, I feel better. I've got this, it off my chest. Mallory, this is scandalous. <laughs> Where is this guy? I, I want to find him. I don't know. Well, I know he's not a real YouTube <laughs> fan for doing something like that. So he's not listening to this podcast, but if oh. you are buddy, you know, you scarred me, you scarred my 16 year old self. Anyway. Oh my anyway. God. Okay. So let, let, let's get back to what we're talking about here. Okay. Um, so following the conclusion of the spring tour of the States on May 20th, 1985, the band releases the EP Wide Awake in America, which was only available in North America and Japan in its initial release. Um, the EP contains live versions of A Sort of Homecoming, which you discussed a little bit earlier, Bill, um, as well as Bad. Um, and I think that most people consider that version of Bad to be... Uh, the definitive live version. It's certainly the version that was played on the radio in the States um, mm -hmm. the most. Um, and it also includes two songs that were previously released as B-sides on the Unforgettable Fire single. And those are Love Comes Tumbling and The Three Sunrises. During the final leg of the tour, uh, the band also plays a number of uh, summer European festivals. But during that summer, the band plays the show that is arguably their most famous, Live Aid. All right. So Live Aid ends up happening July 13th, 1985, the last date you two played on the Unforgettable Fire Tour. And this was, of course, the culmination of the African famine relief effort spawned by Bob Geldof, now Sir Bob Geldof, <laughs> which began with the writing and recording of the Do They Know It's Christmas single back on November 25th, 1984 at SARM West Studios in London. The recording included a star-studded cast of mostly British pop stars like Sting, Simon Le Bon, George Michael, Boy George, and a, what am I doing here, Bono Houston. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Adam tagged along too, though no one can confirm if he did anything other than pour drinks and sing from a distance into a mic <laughs> no one is sure was plugged in. Well, well, well wait, 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 wait. So <laughs> Adam has said that he was very happy uh, to accompany Bono. And he did sing on the choir. Um, he's right behind Bob Geldof, I believe. You know, there is video proof of this bill.
course, you can hear Bono soloing on the line, and tonight, thank God, it's them instead of you, which is the most stinging line in the song. And over the years, this line has brought cries of colonial Western-centric stereotyping. Uh, Bono has said that he didn't want to sing the line and told Bob Geldof so, but Geldof said it's not about what you want, it's about what these people need. And so Bono got on with it. All right, so the Do They Know It's Christmas single would go to number one uh, and inspire Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie and Quincy Jones to spearhead an even worse song called We Are the World with an American star-studded cast, and that would also go to number one. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Bill. Did you say even worse song? Are you saying that you actually don't like Do They Know It's Christmas? I mean, it's a classic. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I can continue working with you if you don't like that song. I, I did love it. I'm just saying, historically speaking, it's certainly taken its lumps. Uh, that's all. <laughs> all right. But all I mean, right. like, listen, compared to We Are the World, it's the greatest song ever. Because where the world really is an embarrassment in songwriting. It's, it's it, it, it may be the single song that gives credence to people who say musicians should stick to music. All right. Anyway, oh, this all comes together for the London and Philadelphia bi-continental performances that made up Live Aid, featuring David Bowie, Queen, Madonna, Duran Duran, Dire Straits, The Who, Led Zeppelin, and many, many others. Yeah, and I mean, historically, I think um, Live Aid is pretty much mostly remembered for two performances, yeah? yeah. U2 and Queen. Um, however, looking back, I mean, it is odd to think that U2, they weren't the headliners. Um, they they actually went on in between Brian Adams and the Beach Boys, um, both of which were performing in Philadelphia. Right. Now, Melody, I don't know if you have uh, clear memories of the morning of July 13th, 1985, but I can tell you that I do. Um, I'd woken up early um, and I watched Status Quo uh, open the concert in London with Rockin' All Over the World, the uh, John Fogarty song. Mm -hmm. um, I was all alone, um, just biding my time until you 2 came on. I mean, this was pretty much the height of my fanboy worship of U2. So this was a massive big deal. Um, Bad was already a song I was obsessed with. Uh, I'd started collecting every bootleg I could get from the Unforgettable Fire Tour because I needed to hear how Bad was evolving throughout that tour. I mean, I'd drive around alone listening to those live versions of Bad because it it comforted me. Um Gave me some solace from the grief, um, you know, of losing my grandfather who died the year before. Uh, spoke to kind of like the agony of watching someone in the throes of addiction, which was part of my journey with my mom. Um, but anyway, it was about 9.20 in the morning in L.A. when you two walked on stage at Wembley. And I remember leaning forward at the very edge of the dark leather red chair my grandfather used to sit in. Um, and they opened with Sunday Bloody Sunday, uh, which was not surprising, but I never expected them to do. We're an Irish band who come from Dublin City, Ireland.
Like all cities, it has its good, it has its bad. This is a song called Bad. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I was so elated um, as a fan that they had chosen to play Bad. Um, rather than some of their shorter hits, which was what I was expecting. Um, it, and for me, it felt like the band was being true to their emotional core um, and strength as a live act. Um, I did think their set was a triumph at the time. Um, I, I didn't see Bono's performance as rock and roll theater or playing to the cameras, but as this authentic desire to make the stadium and the satellite feed feel intimate in hindsight i think it was probably all of those things you know rolled up together and 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 i don't mean that in any sort of disparaging way yeah i mean we both saw and as i mentioned earlier on the spring leg of that tour bad had just literally become such an epic piece mm -hmm. and i guess it's just a um you know it's a testament to how much it had evolved on that leg that they made it a part of the set Right. Um, anyway, so when I heard the opening notes of Bad, I mean, I mean, I fell to my knees on my shag green carpet. I mean, I literally remember throwing my head back in thanks. Um, I couldn't believe it. Um, and you know, now with the benefit of YouTube, we it's a very well-known performance now. I mean, Bono's starting with that first little snippet of Mini, you know, bum bum, satellite of love. The man knows a moment, does he not? Indeed, he does. <laughs> um, you know, th that was all before the song proper. And you know, I can still see him hold up the microphone, you know, to accentuate the line. If I could throw this lifeless lifeline to the wind. Um, and then that line we've spoken of before, if I could through myself set your spirit free. I mean, it's still rough recounting that moment, Melody. Um, I still, it chokes me up. I, I was, that was me in that moment, wishing I could take those demons from my mom. And I can still see Bono bend over and reach out in desperation towards Edge to bring that line to life. And then the release to let it go and so to fade away. I'm wide awake. And then off he goes, Melody, to search for that moment. Off he goes, that moment of connection. Yeah, and, and you know, you have to remember, I mean, it took him so long 
um, because the security didn't know what in the world he wanted yeah. um, when he was pointing to and, and motioning for the girls to to come up on the stage. And, you know, a couple of girls were actually picked out of the crowd and then were ushered off. So I think Bono, you know, really wanting to make that connection, he jumps down um, closer to the audience and then grabs a girl from the front. Um, and then, of course, you know, starts hugging and and slow dancing with her. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And so just to pick it up, what's going on in L.A. at that moment as I'm watching all this. Um, like I said, I, I'd been watching for hours that morning all alone in my living room. Um, and that moment, you know, that that he started to slow dance uh, with that girl. Um, my grandmother comes into the room and she sees me on my knees in front of the TV watching this spectacle and knowing nothing about it. She asks, why is that man hugging that girl? Mm. And you know, it's one of those startling moments, you know, where somebody just walks into the room and you're so enraptured and feeling so totally vulnerable. But this element comes in and, and, and invades your, your inner sanctum, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's it's so disorienting. And, and there I am in this incredibly unguarded state. <laughs> I just know it. I, I don't know how I can even explain. I turn around and I just say, he just needed a hug. And I just start bawling. <laughs> I was just crying. Um, I mean, that is such a freaking crazy, clear memory that is, it's like it's yesterday. I feel it. I. It's a sensory reminder. Um, yeah. Um, you know, Bill, I mean, your story of watching Bad, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's so generous and, and thank you for sharing it. Um, I mean, but it, it just, it just exemplifies how healing this song can be. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that most of the people that were watching the set that day knew um, that it was a triumph, right? Yeah. Uh, but behind the scenes, um, the band and Paul McGinnis, <laughs> amazingly, if you if you think about this, but they really had thought that Bono had blown it yeah. um, with this extended foray into the crowd looking for the girl, um, which did last about, I think it was, I, I, when I was watching it again, I think that lasted three, almost four minutes, mm. um, which was really the same amount of time it would have taken them to play the hit, um, Pride, which they didn't get to. Which um, was planned. Right, which was planned. Um, you know, and, and Bono has described that that after the fact, um, when he walked off the stage, that he was just completely inconsolable um, at what he, you know, considered his quote unquote failure. Yes. And uh, it's reported he was so depressed, he flees, um, uh, you know, to kind of get away from it all. This is now after the tour. And he goes to this medieval port town uh, in Ireland, New Ross, it's called, in County Wexford. And he sees a local sculptor working on a bronze statue. And the man tells Bono the statue was called The Leap, inspired by Bono's own leap of faith from the stage to dance with that girl. And it dawns on Bono that rather than committing career suicide, he had actually captured the spirit of Live Aid. Right. And, you know, and over the next few days after Live Aid, it also begins to dawn on the rest of the band and Paul McGinnis that mm -hmm. contrary to what they had thought of the performance, it was considered, if not 
the highlight, one of the highlights of the day. Um, all of their albums head back into the UK charts. Um, um, you know, and in that span of what, 20 minutes, they become global superstars. Yes, yes, indeed. So um after this, um, Bono and Ali fly off to Ethiopia and spend five weeks as volunteers for the Christian charity organization World Vision, which ends up having a huge impact on the lyrics to the next album. Uh, Edge does the soundtrack to the movie Captive, utilizing the vocals of a young unknown Irish singer called Sinead O'Connor. Larry finally moves out of his dad's house uh, to a new place in North Dublin, where the band reconvenes in late 1985 to start sketching out songs. Right. And then um, after the first of the year, uh, they move to Dane's Moat House, which is about six miles outside of Dublin. This is also this is a house that Adam later ends up buying. Anyway, mm. um, it's also where um, Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoir will rejoin the band to start work on a record that will change absolutely everything. And that, Melody, is where we'll leave things until next time on Into the Heart of U2 podcast. Thank you.